welcome back to On the Nose, the Jewish Currents podcast. I'm your host for today, Ariel Angel, the editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents. I'm joined by Mari Cohen, our assistant editor, Alex Kane, our senior reporter, and Josh Lafer, contributing editor. Today, we're going to be talking about the Mapping Project, which is a anonymous project out of Boston that, in their own words, and I'm quoting, they're a multi-generational collective of activists and organizers, and they wanted, quote, to develop a deeper understanding of local institutional support for the colonization of Palestine and harms that we see as linked, such as policing, U.S. imperialism, and displacement, ethnic cleansing. They created a map. It's a visual aid that also has kind of a textual component that kind of tries to chart all of the ways that support for the colonization of Palestine and policing and weapons manufacturing, pharmaceutical industries, biomedical industries, real estate, a whole host of other centers of power on on different issues are connected to one another. And as you may imagine, this did not go over well. First, there was a, a very serious outcry in the Jewish world with many people accusing the map of being anti-Semitic and sort of adopting a conspiratorial framing, you know, connecting Zionism to sort of every other societal ill, and and also accusing the map of sort of consolidating information that could be used by anti-Semitic attackers, by listing the names of board members of different organizations, for example, including addresses and stuff like that in in the descriptions. And the result has been a, a major backlash against the project including a call by 37 lawmakers, a bipartisan call for federal law enforcement to investigate the mapping project. And also now the FBI has actually announced that they will be investigating. So I, I think the other, the other important thing that has happened is that three weeks since the mapping project was posted, The BDS National Committee came out with a statement distancing themselves from the project, which they said that they weren't able to contact, and which they said that the project, quote, unstrategically targets and provides names and physical addresses of institutions and individuals and promotes messaging that includes phrases such as resistance in all its forms, which they think will open the door to a kind of wider backlash and to infiltration by law enforcement, putting them really in the crosshairs. We wanted to talk today about the broader strategy here and the kind of backlash and counter backlash to all of this. Of course, the BDS movement is also provoked a lot of backlash online since putting out their statement. Maybe the place to start is with the accusation that this project is anti-Semitic on its face. And I wanted to kick that question to the three of you. I don't think it's anti-Semitic. I was looking over the ADL's critique of it. um, And there was a line that stuck out to me where it says, many familiar anti-Semitic tropes are woven into this project, including myths of Jewish wealth, power, and control through the project's inordinate focus on revealing the identity of Jewish philanthropist, doctors, and media. But also it's like, these foundations are dispersing a huge amount of money. And and the combined Jewish philanthropies is one of the largest philanthropic bodies in the country. Um, and this is also true of the Jewish Federation as well. So I don't think it's I, I don't think it's anti-Semitic to point out that American Jewish organizations do wield a lot of power in public life. On the other hand, there is a there is like an aesthetic problem with the project. I think the first is that there is an air of conspiracy that they seem to convey. None of this information is secret. For example, my reaction to this was: if you've grown up in the American Jewish community, all of this is basically common knowledge and very accessible on the websites of the organizations. It doesn't strike me that a lot of research was actually required to obtain this information. And so the packaging of it as if it was hidden intentionally and the act of revealing it as some kind of revolutionary political practice, that does strike me as wrongheaded and and conspiratorial. I I, I think that that gets the way this works wrong. Josh, I just want to push back a little bit on that, even though I think you're right that the presentation is sort of off and and incoherent for different reasons, but I guess I'm not quite sure why you think it's so conspiratorial and and why you think it's, why you sort of seem to imply that it's more useless than useful. Like it is a project that collects a lot of information that is in disparate 
forms and it's, it's locale specific and it's sort of collecting financial information and links to, you know, say the Israeli settlement project and putting them in one simple place. So I'm not saying that the, that the project was like useful in terms of digesting that information, but I guess I just wanted to hear a little bit more about why you think it took on a conspiratorial tone. Well, I think, I think part of it is because some of the, the presentation, the literal links, the mapping feels in some ways like noise. I mean, yes, it's true that major Jewish donors also donate to the local, the major local hospitals in Boston. I don't think that says very much about how the occupation in Israel-Palestine is being reinforced. In some ways, like it leads you away from the locus of oppression rather than to it. I mean that I think another I think another way of saying that is that like it's a map of power, but it's called a map that is tracing kind of like the colonization of Palestine. And I think that like both of those things are true, but for, for that to be the kind of organizing lens for looking at police violence, looking at gentrification, looking at medical apartheid. I mean, for example, from their own page on the site about sort of like their takeaways or how to use the, the map, they start out talking about how Boston's Zionist leaders and NGOs function in relationship to sort of like the university system and how they function at relating to criminalizing Palestine liberation activists on campuses, all this and, and funding police departments. We kind of know all of this stuff. But as you get further down this list of full bu- four bullets, the last thing on the list is major local hospitals and biomedical research centers, which promote the privatization of medicine and healthcare, also work with the U.S. government to develop biological weapons. Now, that's true, but like in kind of a concatenation, we've started with this locus of Zionist organizing and ended up sort of in the weapons industry and biomedical industry. And again, it's not like those relationships don't exist. They do exist. But when the lens is the Zionist, when that's the organizing principle is Zionism, as opposed to sort of like American imperialism or like capitalism or, you know, like whatever, any of these other organizing principles, I think that that's where it sort of gets, it it gets uncomfortable. Again, I, I think that I agree with Josh that that's mostly aesthetic. Like, I don't actually think that the people who made this are anti-Semitic, but I do think that it it reads to me as a bit naive, especially because the tool itself is not that it doesn't feel user friendly or or useful. I mean, I think just particularly because of how hegemonic Zionism is in American society and in the power structures, it's sort of like they've just shown us a, a complete mirror of our world. It's almost like they gave us like the street view of Google Maps or something, and they're like use this to organize. I, I think that the fact that it's not useful is the thing that leaves it open to to this accusation at the end of the day. But quickly on, on the bullet points thing, I do want to say, I don't, I, my understanding was that these points that they're making are intended to be separate. Like it's supposed to be partly about like links between colonization of Palestine and Zionism and like U.S. domestic policing, but it's also, I think, supposed to be about kind of the war on terror and U.S. imperialism more broadly. So I'm not sure that the stuff about hospitals contributing to biological weapons abroad is necessarily supposed to be linked to Zionism, but I agree that it's very unclear in terms of the aesthetic and some of the just the way that it's put together. So it's not totally clear that, that that's the case. No, I, I think they understand the ways that these things are all interlocking. Like, I don't think that they think that Zionism is the center of it, but it is an organizing principle of the map. And that's where it opens them up, I would say. Yeah, I think, right. I think like the sloppiness of the presentation was very easily exploited by mainstream Jewish actors in order to delegitimize the entire Palestinian rights movement. And that that is a flaw within the mapping project in that in purporting to make these connections, they've left themselves quite open to a deliberate strategy to undermine not only them, but the people that that they're allied with. And I'm not sure how useful it is for organizing to just make all of these connections that may well exist, but don't really give much to do about it in a strategic fashion. Well, what's interesting actually is that in an interview with Mondo Weiss, the folks who made the map really did actually intend this as a critique of the way that the the current BDS movement functions. Like they basically have felt like the BDS movement is limited by 
focusing on one corporation or institution at a time. This is a quote from the interview. And without kind of looking at this sort of broader picture, they felt that sort of, quote, the BDS efforts missed the full picture of how the corporations, institutions, and other entities sustaining Zionism and other oppressions operate, not in isolation from one another, but through the web of connections they establish with one another to more effectively carry out their oppressive agenda. So I think they were intentionally trying to, to say, like, here's the full picture, and activists can use this as they want. They can draw the connections. They can use all of these as, as nodes in terms of being able to target them. I mean, I think that's the other like uncomfortable thing about this is this question of dismantling and targeting all of these institutions. There's a lot of institutions listed. People have reached out to us talking about, for example, Black churches that have like once hosted an APAC event or even places like NIF or J Street, which these are Zionist organizations, no question about it. But what it would mean to target them instead of or at the expense of some some other targets on this list, like major funders of hardline right-wing Zionist causes. I mean, I don't know. The activists that, that the mapping project has in mind would have to have a really strong sense of their own strategy and what what they were actually going after here, you know? I, I think that's an important quote, Ariel, because they critique the BDS movement for focusing on one target. And so their answer is to focus on every target without outlining exactly why that matters or how that could help the broader left or Palestinian rights movement. Like I, It doesn't follow for me, I guess, that mapping out th- these dizzying sense of connections gets you any closer to advancing your struggle than anything else. And the second thing on the, the New Israel Fund thing, which I think is important to point out, it's like in their entry on the New Israel Fund, they you know say that the New Israel Fund basically functions as a sort of soft way to like- A normalizer. Normalize Zionism in liberal circles because they fund these projects that are anti-occupation, but don't oppose the existence of Israel as a Jewish state. But the New Israel Fund funds- Adala, for instance, which is the main legal center for Palestinian citizens of Israel within Israel. And Adala has advanced anti-colonial critiques of Israel, of course, working within Israeli institutions because that's where they're situated. But they label Israel an apartheid state. They produce legal analyses about uh, Israeli apartheid. They continually sort of research and put out widely disseminated reports that show really Israel as a colonial project. And yet they're attacking the new Israel fund who are yes, liberal Zionists, but at the same time, they're also liberal Zionists that are funding an institution that arguably undermines liberal Zionism. So I I mean, this is, well, so I think this is a question that we really want to ask, which is like, we know that there is broad based hegemonic support for Zionism in the Jewish community. And I would I would also add outside the Jewish community in centers of power, but let's just stick with the Jewish community. And like, what is the effective way to deal with or target those institutions? I mean, I remember back in the day, actually, I heard, I heard some outcry, or maybe I saw this on Twitter or something, people talking about schools in particular, like how a major pluralistic day school was on this list. Is that a fair target because they get money from one of the major funders and one of the major nodes of the map, the Gann family? But, you know, I I remember like with If Not Now, like one of the main campaigns was organizing in day schools, was recognizing that summer camps and day schools were a prime pillar of where some of the cultural and educational basis for Zionism comes from in the community. And, you know, targeting school kids like in high school and stuff to to try to challenge that within their schools. So, I mean, obviously that's a different kind of targeting. It's like a students from within trying to bring the fight into their schools and into their camps um, and alumni of those schools and camps. But still, I, what is the appropriate way to target Jewish institutions? And, and should there be a sort of spectrum, you know, like of how, how you deal with organizations like J Street versus how you deal with huge philanthropies like the Kraft family philanthropy or or the ADL or, you know. One thing I want, I want to say on that is I do think these questions are just going to continue to become more live because I think that we're going to continue to see this. I think this is the direction in which a lot of grassroots Palestinian 
activism is going is really like, for example, on Tufts at Tufts recently, there was a student campaign around kind of boycotting certain Zionist affiliated groups and J Street was on the list. And so that was something that came up. And I think that some of those campaigns are going to continue to happen. I don't, it's not that those groups were necessarily cozy with J Street ever in the past. In fact, there were times when J Street used to participate in opposing divestment campaigns on campus. I don't think they really do that anymore. I don't think they do that anymore. Yeah. So obviously there was always tension, but I think having J Street really be more of like an explicit target is a bit of a newer thing. And I think that's going to continue to come up with some of these organizations. And so I think it's just, you know, these questions are going to be continue to be worked out. I think part of it probably does have to do with the way in which the increasing entrenched situation does produce, you know, increased response, sort of the sense that like the typical methods aren't working anymore, like sort of a exhaustion with any kind of sense of accommodationism or anything like that. Um, I mean, so I we also saw it with Sunrise, right? I mean, this is like a very similar question when Sunrise earlier this year decided they didn't want to participate in the voter rights coalition because of the existence of groups like, I don't know, was it like Ben the Ark or? No, no it wasn't Ben the Ark because they don't take, it was like National Council on Jewish oh, Women because Council they have a liberal Zionist position, uh, URJ, Reform Action right. Council. Yeah. So we've been, I think it's in some ways it's kind of similar. Well, with Bowman, the Jamal Bowman and DSA thing is a little bit different because that's more about him, partly about him voting for Iron Dome funding, but also has to do with his affiliation with J Street and a willingness to go on one of their trips. So I think this is going to continue to come up. And I mean, I think in general, the question is a really challenging one. I think also the, what you're asking, Ariel, in terms of how we sort of deal with these different places like day schools that do have this level of complicity in terms of, you know, what they teach regarding Israel and Zionism, the type of trips that they do. And but all of these Jewish institutions, I mean, I think that's like the most challenging question for maybe those of us who are looking at this from this perspective. I think that is one of the big things that we have to think about. Uh, It's just this kind of inconvenient fact that right now the majority of institutional Jewish life in America and the majority of Jewish people is in our Zionist. And it's like, I think there's often like a lot of it has come the the point in the pot every podcast where Mari has to point out that all that most Jews are Zionists. Well, I just think there's often attempt to avoid this fact because it's like, well, first of all, because we want to lift up the fact that many Jews aren't Zionists and that's often erased. And so we want to emphasize that. And also we want to avoid it's a lot easier to just be like, oh, yeah, not all Jews are Zionists, not all Zionists are Jews. You know, this is saying Zionist has nothing to do with Jewish because that does make like a certain political point to refute accusations of anti-Semitism. But then we still have this like sort of inconvenient fact that contemporary Jewish life in the U.S. is very much based around Zionism and not just like the most outwardly political institutions. And so it doesn't always get so easy to make those distinctions. And so then the question is, how do we target that? What do we do about it? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I agree with you, Mari. I think part of what feels inadequate about the mapping project is just the the feeling that there is a rhetorical call for the dismantling and disruption, but there isn't really an elaboration of what that might mean. And so back in the day, you know, with If Not Now, it was, I don't think this ever went into action, but the one of the later phases of the movement was supposed to have a mass walkout of students at day schools to protest the communities. Um, complicity in the occupation that never happened in part because I don't think if not now ever made its step like its politics hegemonic within these institutions and 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 it ran up against the massive resistance of a Jewish community that is largely supportive of the status quo but that at least was an inside strategy where it felt like we had a sense of what the goal of identifying this as a site of struggle was and what's not clear with the mapping project is like okay so if if the same day schools are are part of this broader infrastructure, what does that mean? It makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, after all, these are students, they are children. What is the nature of this targeting? And I think that leads me to my what I meant, I think, by my aesthetic critique of the project is that there's an element of radical chic here. There's a little, and I don't necessarily mean that in the bad way, although I think like here it, it went a little bit over the top. Like there's a sort of, we're going to bring the war home sensibility. We're going to bring the, you know, the occupation is this violent thing. And so we're going to disrupt it here where the financial base is. But with, again, without a lot of elaboration about what that means, and that opens them up to criticism. I think if there had been a more robust strategic thinking around this, what we mean when we say disrupt 
vis-a-vis this institution might look like this, I think it would have been less vulnerable to the kind of critique. This always surprises me when things like this happen on the left is that there's like a outrage by supporters of the initiative that it's being critiqued or along these lines are being accused of anti-Semitism. It's like, what do you expect to happen when you do these sorts of things? I mean, the response to the accusation of anti-Semitism should be part of the strategic rollout from the beginning. And that we're like doing this nth iteration of this sort of thing without anyone seeming to take that seriously. You don't have to think that it actually is anti-Semitic or that the criticism is legitimate, but if you're operating in like the realm of, of a hegemonic contestation, you do have to answer to the critique. You can't just hand wave and say, all of that's bad faith and we refuse to respond to it. I, I think it just opens up the project to failing from the get-go, basically. I mean, I, I will, one other thing I'll say is I think there are clear strategic limits to what we might call the strategy of ostracization of Zionist organizations because support for Israel and acceptance of Zionism is just mainstream in American political life. It's actually having the reverse effect where I feel like anti-Zionist Palestine Palestine solidarity groups by saying we're not going to work with groups with even sort of tangential ties to Zionist organizations end up self-marginalizing and ending up outside of activist spheres. I mean, that's what ha- that to me, I feel like Sunrise ended up out coming out of that scandal, pseudo scandal, looking less credible and less powerful than the Zionist organizations that it sought to target. I mean, maybe that's how it starts and then eventually it picks up steam. But at least in like right now, it seems like it's having the opposite effect. Well, I think, I, you know, okay, I'm having deja vu. I feel like we've had this exchange on this podcast before, which just goes to show that all the same things just happen again and again. And we're just like, you know, like trapped in an Ouroboros in that way. And that sucks for all of us. And especially, I think, for <laughs> the Palestine Solidarity Organizers who have to deal with this and just whatever, you know, that's. But I think what's hard is the question. I actually agree with you in a lot of ways, Josh. I think the question, again, though, is like, how much can you incorporate anticipating anti-Semitism arguments into your strategy when that's going to be a slur that's going to be tossed around no matter what you do. Even though I still do think there's ways in which this project specifically could have been handled differently, I do have, I have sympathy for the argument that it doesn't matter what we do. They're going to call us these things anyway. So we might as well like take back this project take back the activism and do what we want. And I, I do think that maybe is the broad trend that we're seeing now in terms of like a lot of grass, maybe grassroots organizers and younger people in the movement is kind of just like, I'm not going to sit around and play by these rules anymore. Uh, no, but I, what I think is really interesting about this is that we're actually seeing, I'm assuming slightly older Palestinians like hit back at this. Hopefully if you listen to this podcast it's clear that the response from government, the FBI investigation, the lawmakers kind of specifically calling for a response is terrifying and horrible. And the fact that lots of people on the left, including us, including organizations like JVP, who initially supported it and then retreated and said, we don't take a position on this map, is a little bit scary because it means that there's like nobody who's coming to the defense of people who, again, are up against an enormous amount of power who, who really at worst made kind of like an ineffective tool. At the end of the day, like this is the kind of thing that could have been ignored, just roundly ignored. Like if the Jewish community didn't get off on this kind of controversy, this is the kind of thing that is ultimately sort of fringe and is so is so over the top and confusing and hard to figure out how to use that it could have literally been ignored. And so I just want to say that, that there's support for these activists who are being targeted, who who may feel, I mean, I'm really hoping that they don't, but who may feel the weight of the state coming down on them. But what I think is really interesting is seeing sort of like these older, and again, I'm assuming that they're older, Palestinians kind of clapping back like on the basis of strategy and taking issue, Mari, with with that kind of strategy. And I think that that's sort of interesting. And I and also, by the way, not just uh, generational, but also diaspora versus on the ground. I mean, you have the BDS uh, National, the BNC, saying like, we are the people who are affected. We are here, you know, and nobody consulted us about how that's going to affect us. 
And I think that there's something interesting there, especially because Josh and I just got back from this conference in Berlin and had a few conversations with different Palestinians who were there. And of course, they were at this conference that was largely organized by Jews. But I think that there is a kind of bafflement or frustration with a kind of non-strategic way that particularly the American or diaspora kind of revolutionary movement and maybe like more youth oriented movement is, is approaching this. Now I'm not, I'm not taking a side in, in either of these and it's really not, I don't feel like my place to, to comment, but you can look at this as like a, a disconnect between sort of like the grassroots BDS movements who may or may not have to coordinate with the kind of a national committee or you could look at this as a situation where like it would have been more effective to do some consulting and I and I actually am not sure. Yeah, I mean it's in, the backlash to the BDS movement criticizing the mapping project has been very intense in full transparency. The reason I know that is because of Twitter and always there's the question of what about Twitter is real life and what isn't. But it's clear that that provoked a lot of dissent and some organizations like the Palestinian Youth Movement did put out statements defending the mapping project and criticizing BDS movement for getting involved. And part of that too is also in some ways a strategic concern. Like, is it the best strategy for the BDS movement to pile on to this project that's already being criticized when other things are happening? Like Arkansas, the court has ruled that to uphold this like anti-BDS law that makes it so that state contractors can be barred from boycotting Israel or they have to say that they won't boycott Israel to get state contracts. And, you know, it's pretty it's a pretty major decision for the right to boycott in the U.S. that could have more consequences down the line, probably going to go to Supreme Court with this current court. Hard to feel optimistic about that anyway. So it's like that's the context that's going on yesterday. Is it most strategic for BDS movement to come out against this? So these conversations are happening in different layers, but it does feel frustrating sometimes when any talk about strategy gets responded to as if it's like you're just trying to be like a liberal NGO, whatever, or like any talk about like, you know, thinking about these dynamics gets responded to as if you're just only left punching or anything, because I mean, this is part of winning and building power. And I don't know. Maybe I am just a true liberal NGO lover at heart, but I just find it a little bit frustrating when conversations get shut down in that way. Well, I want to wait. Sorry, I just want to bring in Alex because, Alex, you had a point about the fact that the BDS movement is essentially a liberal institutional movement. I mean, like, and I wanted to give you a chance to to voice that. Yeah, the the context for that, for my comment in within our Slack was looking at both the BDS National Committee's public statement on Twitter and what they thought was a private letter that they sent to BDS Boston, which is a local group of BDS organizers in Boston that had promoted the mapping project. And they, the Boycott National Committee, which is based in Ramallah, sent them a letter saying, don't promote this as BDS Boston because, as Ariel referenced, you know we're the Boycott National Committee and we're going to be feeling the backlash to this and our movement partners in the United States are also going to be feeling the backlash to what is ultimately an unstrategic project that uses language that undermines our movement. And the letter goes on to say that, you know, the language in in particular is about resistance and resistance in any forms, which the mapping project use, They, they encourage resistance in any form. And the BNC saw that as a potential endorsement of armed resistance, which they, in the letter, distance themselves from and emphasize that they're a nonviolent movement and that th- this kind of rhetoric could be harmful to the larger BDS movement. And I, you know, for me, that was like, oh, well, okay, this is really a prime example of the Palestinian BDS strategy as being a liberal strategy, meaning that it's a strategy that depends on succeeding within the current American centers of power. So the BDS movement goes to pension funds. They say divest from these corporations that do business with the Israeli military. They go to churches and ask the same thing. Um, they're not. They're not they're saying looking, they're looking to build to sanctions from the American government. Right. I mean, like they're not saying let's overthrow the U.S. government because it's an imperial force. They're saying let's convince yeah. the U.S. government to impose sanctions on our oppressor. And let's convince these pension funds, which are probably invested in all sorts of nefarious things, of divesting from Israel because that will serve the cause of Palestinian liberation 
you know, so it's a, it's a liberal strategy because it's not about changing U.S. society's economic structure or overall structures. It's like, let's basically work within the system. And it's sort of funny because the opponents of BDS on the right paint the BDS movement as this illiberal, reactionary, pro-violent, pro-terrorist force. They often point to the inclusion of what's called the Council of National Islamic Forces on the Boycott National Committee's sort of coalition that that powers it. And that council sort of includes the political movements of you know Hamas and the PFLP. So I mean, it's a real kind of haunted house of mirrors here where the sort of interpretations of the BDS movement are all over the place, depending on how you look at it. But, you know, I think the correct perspective is to say that it is fundamentally a reformist, liberal movement. And, and, and that letter about the mapping project brought that home. Yeah. And I think it's kind of amazing, actually, to see people on all sides responding to it. I mean, like, because it was leaked somehow to the Jewish Journal, which is a very far right newspaper, if you can call it that, out of Los Angeles, which BDS Boston, you guys need to really get your security in order because that is a weird place for it to end up unless it was some for some reason intentional, which I don't understand. But um, at least send it to Jewish Currents next time. Yeah, or send it to Jewish Currents next time, for God's sakes. Still, because it was leaked to the Jewish Journal, and a lot of that guy's followers are just sort of like the hardest of hardest core Zionists, you see so much confusion in the quote tweets about how it's possible that the terrorist BDS organization, you know, that it's too little too late, or they're like backtracking, you know, it's like, it's such a, you see sort of the misunderstanding in real time. But I also think you may see it from the left in a similar way, like just a misunderstanding of what this tactic is really about. I actually haven't really thought about this until now, but it does seem like the mapping project is self-consciously an expression of frustration with the BDS movement. And so you know, it's it's not surprising that the BDS movement would jump in and say like, hey, you're both using our frame and taking it to a place we don't want to go and doing it anonymously where like we end up absorbing the backlash of something that we didn't create. But it does raise this question of, of what the answer is actually, you know, because we, I think we've talked before about the limitations of the BDS movement. I mean, we share some of the sense that it hasn't actually delivered the wins while also provoking a lot of backlash. And we've also talked on this podcast before about the ways that that it feels like the ground instead of the ceiling. And so like, what are the ways to build up from that that don't look the way that the mapping project looks that doesn't sort of cast too wide a net in terms of targets and in terms of information, but that like allows for a real strategy? Just one thing I will say, I mean, I think if you are like a right-wing Zionist or a centrist, whatever, anti-BDS activist, pro-Israel advocate in the United States, congratulations. Your best opportunity to, you know, kind of have a movement like fighting Israel that you're probably like more comfortable with or that is like is more on your political terms in terms of things around like nonviolent resistance, like even liberal coexistence framing, that sort of thing. You have missed that opportunity a thousand times over. You have like marginalized, like you have accused those people of being bloodthirsty terrorists, anti-Jew terrorists a thousand times. And now you're going to get versions of resistance that are a lot less palatable and that are more uncomfortable. And so it's just, it is quite ironic to think about it in that way. And that like, there are these, these moments that have gone by and anything that actually was like really presented in this framework that probably could theoretically be politically palatable to some of those people who oppose it. They, those people have been calling it terrorism and have basically like marginalized it and shamed it and like tried to stamp it out and pound it into the ground. So good job. Yeah, Mari, I think that's a great point. And actually, Peter Beiner, our editor at large, made of that point in uh, in Germany, I guess, last week in a, this debate with um, Danny Cohn-Bendit, where Cohn-Bendit was, was talking about his opposition to BDS. And Peter was like, but this is a nonviolent movement and, and, and was basically making the point you made, Mari, that the alternative to BDS is, is much more unpalatable to, to, to these folks, unless, unless, you know, strategically, 
they would prefer to have a violent adversary that they can totally delegitimize rather than having to deal with the Palestinian movement writ large as, you know, violent and terroristic. I do think, Ariel, what you said about this being an expression of frustration is totally right. It strikes me following our conversation about what was happening on campus is kind of a turn in the totally opposite direction. That whereas campus BDS resolutions had actually become, I don't want to say watered down, but certainly much more strategic and oriented around specific companies and also not even singling out Israel, you know, it would be against Egypt or whatever, groups and countries supporting the occupation. This is kind of a turn in the opposite direction. I think you do see similar things happening on other campuses occasionally with having to do with like Hillel as a legitimate institution at all because of its ties to the Israeli government. And, and, and perhaps there will be some kind of, you know, strategic parting of ways or internal reckoning within the BDS movement as it tries to negotiate whether it wants the liberal paradigm or whether there's a kind of hard line anti-normalization position. Why now though? I mean, like, I mean, obviously like no one thinks that BDS is like delivering the changes on the ground that everyone wants, but BDS has had a number of high profile wins recently. I mean, like with Ben and Jerry's with, I mean, their big thief, the band just after announcing their shows in Israel, rescinded them because of the cultural boycott. I mean, you know, Sally Rooney. I mean, I'm just thinking of like stuff in the last year. I mean, there's ac- there actually has been more and more movement. And you can see how like in a, a little bit of time that might snowball on some level to like have the intended effect. Obviously, it's not like delivering changes. And, in, and if anything, if you look at what's happening in Israel, it's not clear how like whether the Israeli government, even if they were harmed, even if there were sanctions, how they would respond to that kind of financial pressure, because there is a existential siege mentality or whatever. But I do wonder like why this frustration would come up particularly now. I mean, I feel like it's not mirrored, though, in the realm of like, geopolitics or or power politics. Like, yes, it's certainly true. I think in America that among young people, it's it, it is probably unpopular to describe oneself as a Zionist and and support you know the actions of the Israeli state. On the other hand, there's been reports recently about Israel being part of a strategic missile defense with Arabs with, with some of the right. countries in the Gulf. There's a looming normalization agreement with Saudi Arabia. Maybe yeah. it'll happen soon. Maybe it won't. Like at least in the realm of geopolitics, and as the United States tries to cobble together this alliance to counterbalance Iran, there's no sense that Israel is suffering at all yeah. for maintaining the occupation. If anything, the the Arab states um, and the region have decided that it doesn't really matter that the occupation persists. And so I feel like we're in this weird moment where in some sense BDS is maybe if not winning, but has gained a lot of really important ground in the cultural realm in the West, but it's made almost no material difference geopolitically. But then all the more reason to be like really selective about targets, you know, Because like in the face of all that, like what is knowing that the GAN day school got money from whoever and teach it, you know, like what does that help us? You know, like, like it seems like in that regard, like it's really about the donors and that could be a very useful piece of this mapping project is just like the donor list itself and the large NGOs and the ones who are the worst offenders, like, you know, the ADL and the entities within the U.S. government. And, and and specifically in terms of the, the question about the, the entities in the U.S. government, like distinguishing there between those that can be pushed and those that can't. I mean, this was something that came out of the, the piece in Mondo Weiss by Nora Lester Murad, who is talking about, you know, similar to what we talked about with like NAF and J Street, you know, including people like Elizabeth Warren and Ed Marquis on the map as targets, as opposed to people who could be cultivated or people that we really think that we need to move essentially. Yeah. I I mean, I think this is the larger sort of meta context, which is not necessarily like you sort of have to be embedded or, or, you know, covering these movements as we do to kind of understand it as, as such, because it's not, it's not really clear within the mapping project itself. If you just looked at it, you wouldn't see that, that, that this is also a sort of, proxy fight between different wings of the Palestinian rights movement. But I do see it as such because over the past decade or so, since Operation Castellet, there has been a more concerted effort to focus on Washington by a sort of small group of organizations, but that includes you know, Jewish Voice for Peace and U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, uh, American Muslims for Palestine now. Many of the major Palestinian rights NGOs have turned their focus to, to Washington to say, 
Oh, we do actually have a little bit, some allies. We have, you know, Betty McCollum, who authored a bill to condition U.S. military aid to Israel. We have, you know, Rashida Tlaib now, these sort of lawmakers. And so let's lobby them and let's focus on building relationships with them. So that's one wing of the movement that that has sort of turned their eyes towards Washington over the past decade for the first time and seeing to them what what looks like success in in you know the introduction of these resolutions that ultimately don't go anywhere but they see as successful because it's sort of attracting headlines and and sort of bringing up the debate about US military aid versus a wing of the Palestinian rights movement that you know rejects that turn towards Washington because they see it as useless they see it as basically having to collaborate with you know politicians whose sort of larger agenda they don't agree with or who may be who may not share their views on like Zionism. Like Betty McCollum is not an anti-Zionist. She believes, you know, in a two-state solution. The same with many of the other lawmakers that are backing her her legislation. These are not exactly, you know, you're not exactly like the most sort of radical person if you're if you're working within on these legislation, which is like the long slog of moving legislation through Congress. And so I think that the, the reaction to the mapping project has predictably split along the lines of those who want to uh, focus uh, on Washington or focus on liberal institutions or institutions that are centers of power versus those who want to throw everything out and, and, and sort of somehow advance a revolutionary politics that aims at dismantling it rather than working from within. And um, I think that that is where some of this fight is coming from. I I feel like there's no question that the electoral track has not created the results that we want to see. But I do think that considering how dire everything is, and and also considering, I mean, like, you know, seeing the havoc that comes from sort of like allowing the electoral space and the institutional space to just you know, to, to abandon that space on some level is pretty striking. And, and also like recognizing that institutions on their own, like create the opportunity for building or for exercising more power. They, they've just already concentrated those resources. So without being too sanguine about the ability to completely change those organizations and, and really, you know, I, I believe in sort of the inside outside strategy. And I think a lot of people in Jewish currents do as well. But I would just say like the onus, I think is on some level on these kind of more revolutionary elements to express and a clear strategy for how they're going to build and what the basis is that they're going to build on. I mean, if, if the map shows anything, it's that power is arrayed in such a way where everything is interconnected and blah, 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 even exactly as they say, and they don't have the numbers to really execute on something that will significantly put a dent in that. And so, you know, I I do feel a little bit like saying the map is a tool, use it how you want, is very frustrating in that regard, because again, the onus is really on these revolutionary or insurrectionary groups to advance a strategy for building power without utilizing any kind of institutional frame. I don't know if like the DSA continues to be that. And I and I think it has split largely, you know, again and again along these self-same questions. But if it's not the DSA, then what is it? You know, is it the organized labor? Where can you actually create the basis? There has to be one somewhere. And that that seems to me like the fundamentals that sometimes feel like they're being ignored and particularly online and some of the way that like these arguments play out. Meanwhile, what we see in the backlash is that the right sort of has these power relationships on lock, right? Like the Boston institutional, you know, kind of establishment Zionist Jewish community can see this map, like the ADL can get upset about it. And like, you know, a couple days later, they can have all of these elected officials on their side writing articles, like they can have the FBI starting to pilot an investigation into it. And they really do have the ear of power in that way. And I'm not being anti-Semitic. It's not only the case for Jewish groups or anything. It's just, you know, these broader right forces in general really have a lot of support um, in the halls of power. And then meanwhile, like there's this like attempt to say that like 
Jews aren't taken seriously when they talk about anti-Semitism, which can be the case if you're going after certain types of like white supremacy. And obviously it depends who's talking. And if you're complaining about the Republican Party, often whatever, good luck. But it is kind of striking that that's this like narrative that's been pushed. But then these organizations in Boston, like the ADL can pretty much like they've consolidated all this power that it's like pretty easy for them to turn around and and make this happen when they're complaining about something. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's I think that's right, Mari. I also think though, I mean, I, I I know that I I began this with a critique of the project, but I I I also don't want to you know join in on the pylon to this because at the end of the day, like Ariel, you said it's not really shouldn't really be that big of a deal. And in some ways, like if it had been kept private as a as an educational tool for movements to understand the interconnectedness of NGOs, like, you know, that strikes me as totally fine. I think it's the feeling that there was a, just um, this is how I feel about it, like a lack of preparation for a, an eventual backlash and a, and a sort of messaging around what the goal of revealing this was, other than saying, like, here are the nodes, do what you want, like that feels inadequate. Um, I also think that because there is this taboo against talking about the real political power that Jewish organizations have worked over decades to accrue. Um, There has to be an extra sensitivity around it. But also at the same time, I think the one thing that's missing for me here, and it's part of the lack of a broader strategy, is a sense of how this focus on civil society actually does relate to state power. And I think we ran into this back in the early days of If Not Now as well, when, you know, If Not Now worked on this model of there were pillars that upheld the occupation. One of them was the American Jewish community, but not all of them. And the focus of If Not Now is a strategic intervention within the broader movement ecosystem of anti-occupation and Palestine solidarity activism was to target this specific pillar. And I think like for all of the faults of the original DNA, I think that was very helpful in its specificity of understanding the point of intervention. And I think one of the things that you see with the mapping project is a little bit of a blurring of the lines or a lack of clarity around how actually this power is being wielded to do the things that it says it's doing. It isn't at all clear to me how these civil society Zionist NGOs, even through their donations, end up entrenching or deepening or exacerbating the colonization of Palestine. I mean, obviously that's true that it does in a macro sense, but I think if we were to want to really disrupt those processes, we would need to know how it functions like on the ground or what the relationship is, where, where does it intersect with state power? I mean, there's just, in some ways, like the research felt like it went in the wrong direction and is more confusing than clarifying. I mean, maybe that's too harsh, uh, but I just, I mean, I think in general, they're also, in addition to the electoral insurrectionary axis of strategic conflict, I think there is also a state versus civil society focus. Like there's a sense that if we build strong social movements, if we engage in the sort of hegemonic realm, then we'll somehow win. And that oftentimes neglects the more state-oriented focus. I mean, for whatever the limitations also of the Sanders campaign, that came pretty, pretty close to putting the issue of conditional aid on the table. I mean, it did put conditional aid on the table, which swung the conversation on what could be done to put pressure on the Israeli government in a way that it really hadn't for a long time. And so, you know, I, I guess like I, I don't know what the best use of energy is, but I do think that maybe in the left's disillusionment with electoralism and with the state, there's been an overcorrection. And now there's too much of a focus on civil society, where it's like, if we just figure out where the bad like nonprofits are, then we'll be able to solve the problem. But but, I think there's a way of overstating the power that those, those groups have. I think it is important to note that like, the backlash has involved this like idea that there's like these like, violent revolutionary like BDS groups that are just like waiting to commit an armed attack on Jewish institutions like you know that was sort of some of like the the vibes of like the ADL statement like the JCRC in Boston like just a lot of the coverage in that way and I just want to say that that's really distance from reality I mean obviously we live in a violent country we've got a lot of guns things can happen but we have not seen like a BDS activist anti-semitic violent attack on a Jewish institution in the U.S. I guess there's been some um, altercations and there have been some attacks like during street protests last year. And that is something that did happen. But like in terms of the idea that like there's these groups of BDS activists that are just waiting to find the addresses of synagogues and attack them. I mean, that's just that they can't use Google for on their own. Right. But at the same time, we know that there is a conversation about the legitimacy of armed struggle happening on the U.S. left with regards to Israel-Palestine. And the Mapping Project does say, like, have a by any means, you know, like, 
I mean, rhetoric. To I, it. I, do we actually think that they meant that people should be like physically attacking these targets? Like, it's not really clear to me. And I, and I, Alex, you were talking about this earlier about the language that's being used. And, and actually, Nora Lester Murad and her Mondo Weiss piece also talks about that. They're basically saying like. I know what they mean as a leftist when they say dismantle these things or disrupt these things or whatever at, at these addresses or whatever. But on some level, like who are they speaking to with this language? And should they be thinking about what that looks like? It really mirrors some of these other questions about language more broadly on the left and, and who the audience is and whether you're talking to the broadest possible audience or not. And, and whether like people are really prepared to kind of own up to the implications of the words that are being used, essentially. I mean, that's what I meant by radical chic. It's like, if you're going to intimate towards physical disruption, then when people say, are you intimating towards physical disruption, you should have a sense of what you meant by that. But if it's just rhetorical inflation, we want to say, we want to like exhort people to do something, but it's actually amorphous. We didn't mean show up at the headquarters of the combined Jewish philanthropies and do something, you know, like that, that should have been specified as a strategy of, well, I mean, well, really quickly, like, like do something is one thing dismantle is another thing. And like, I mean, look, I think all these places should be dismantled. I think most of these organizations at this point are doing what the mapping project says that they're doing, which is supporting the ongoing apartheid in Palestine. And not all of them, if you're looking at some of these philanthropies they give to a lot of different things and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there is a lot of money there that's ending up in places where the none of us would support. And I, the question of whether these organizations should be essentially destroyed and rebuilt, I mean, I don't know what it would mean to take over this. I mean, not least of which because younger people don't even have the money anymore to do the kinds of things. And, and because we're really talking about such a small group of, of donors running the show here. Like, obviously, like, if not now, used to disrupt these organizations all the time and like stage kind of arrests there and whatever. But but it just isn't clear with within the context of the rest of this revolutionary rhetoric what's actually being proposed. And I would suspect that this group of people would look at the old school, if not now, actions where people like sat in lobbies and got arrested and think that that was kind of lame. And I would agree with them. But then the question is, well, then what? And what are we really talking about? And again, I think the onus is on these groups to not hide behind that language and to say what they mean. And, and then, of course, the flip side is the vagueness of that allows your enemies to project the, their most violent fantasies of what you actually mean and then use that to undermine what you're trying to do, which is exactly what happened where you have columns in the Washington Post claiming that this will incite anti-Semitic violence, the same claims made by the Anti-Defamation League, and the unclear language plays into that. Well, I think we're going to have to wrap up. I think the last thing that I want to say is sending a hug to the people who did the mapping project, if you're listening to this. Obviously, we have some maybe strategic disagreements. It's probably a really tough time, at least personally. I I sort of want to end there. (laughs) This has been On the Nose. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with someone, leave us a review, like it. Yeah. And see you next time. Bye-bye.